I want you to think of a name. Well, not just any name, but a specific name for a specific reason, which I'll get to in just a moment. But first, let's talk about the importance of names. Right? And think about um, what do you do when you hear your name? Well, that doesn't that kind of depend on, on who's saying it and how they say it? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were on vacation and we were in Las Vegas. And uh, I was sure I heard someone call my name, you know, while I'm walking down Fremont Street. So here we're in this this crowded street filled with with vacationers and drunks and gamblers and brides and grooms and beggars and street artists. And, and I hear someone calling, Dan, Dan. And I stopped. I looked around. I craned my neck. But if they were looking for Dan, it was another Dan they were looking for. Now, when my wife screams at me from the other side of the house, Dan, well, I know that either she needs my help or I've messed up in a big way. The only problem is that I don't know whether to run to her for help or to run and hide. Well, she can say my name in 10 different ways and mean a 100 different things. Our names are important to us. Like my full name is Daniel, but very rarely am I a Daniel. I mean, as a kid, my mom would say Daniel Allen Raymond, and that was not a good thing. However, years later, when I walked across the stage uh, and the dean of students hands me my diploma and there's a name read, Daniel Allen Raymond, well, that was a badge of honor. Now, when I was a little kid, I was Danny. But when we moved to Minnesota in my 10th grade year, I thought Danny was too childish. And I wanted to leave those childish ways behind me. I wanted a new name, a new identity, a fresh start. And so I insisted that everyone start calling me Dan. And uh, it was this chance to redefine myself. And if after that point, my parents or my sister dared call me Danny, especially in front of anybody else, well, then the wrath of Daniel would come out. When my own kids were born, I remember that it took Teresa and I forever to pick Alyssa's name. You know, I like this name and she liked that name. You know, and 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 she hated the name that I liked. I wasn't the biggest fan of, of her name. And Alyssa was like the first name that we heard that neither one of us hated. I mean, what a way to pick a name. Well, I don't hate it. Do you hate it? No, I don't hate it. That's her name. But now it's almost impossible to think of her as anything else. She is Alyssa. Now, I say all of that because I want you to think about this. God knows your name, right? God thinks of you individually, personally, right? You're not just a, a member of humanity. You're not just one data point of, of Gen X or, or the millennials or Gen Z, right? You're more than just your gender or your political affiliation or any other group identity that our culture seems to be so infatuated with. You're more than a member of your family, a student at your school, an employee at your company, or a member of your church. But you're an individual, a unique soul created in the image and the likeness of God. And the very fa fact that you are alive on this planet means that, that you are imbued with, with divine meaning and purpose. You have a Savior who knows you and loves you. Jesus tells us in John 10, 14, 
I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. In fact, God knows you deeper than you even know yourself, knowing even the numbers of the hairs on your head. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29 through 32, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Right? And God knows you by name. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, see, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. It's Isaiah 49, 16. The idea here is that, that God has, has tattooed or, or branded himself with our names on his hands. And this imagery is God's way of saying that, hey, whatever I'm doing, I'm thinking about you. I, I won't forget about you. I care about you. And we find these personal threads that, that are woven all the way throughout Scripture, all the way to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus promises to the faithful in the church at Sardis that, quote, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. <laughs> Think about that. Your name written down in the book of life. Right? And your Savior will speak your name aloud before the ruler of all worlds, seen and unseen, and, and his innumerable, mysterious, angelic creatures of the heavenly court. The same voice that called Abraham by name, Abraham, Abraham, that called Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Martha, Simon, Peter, and Saul by name, that same voice will speak your name in the halls of heaven. Now, I want to be really careful here with what I'm saying. Because as Americans, uh, I'm assuming you're, you're watching this, you're from North America, but maybe not. But in America, we have a very individualistic culture. It's all about me, myself, and I. And even within the confines of American Christianity, our faith can become very much, it's all about me, yay me, God loves me, Jesus died for me. And I don't really want to feed into all of that. So let me take everything that I've just said, and, and I want to steer it in a different direction. And that brings us back to the name that I mentioned, that I want you to write down a name. And I do want you to write down a name. So, so grab a piece of scrap paper. you got a notebook sitting nearby, or maybe you keep notes on your phone, whatever it is. But I want you to write a name. And I want you to pick out a name. It's someone in your life who really needs Jesus in their life. And maybe it's somebody who, who needs Jesus back in their life. Again, you know, they used to know Jesus and follow Jesus, but, but they've walked away from that. Or maybe they've never had Jesus in their life at all, ever. In fact, knowing you might be the closest they've ever come to Jesus. But this is someone, this name you're going to write down is someone in your life who needs to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, as you think about that name, whoever it is, Think about what they mean to you, right? Maybe it's somebody you work with. You, you might go to school with them. Maybe they're your, your neighbor or someone in your family. And you care for them deeply. 
Well, maybe the name you're thinking of is, is not a close friend, but maybe they're a bit of a rival. But think about what this person means to you. Think of what you've been through together, right? And maybe just the mention of their name brings to your mind certain memories that you share, right? Times that you have laughed, that you have cried. Their name brings to mind some of the hopes that you have for them, or maybe you're reminded of certain fears. Right? Their name brings with it certain hurt and heartache. But it's a name that's a part of your life, maybe every week or maybe nearly every single day. But however deeply you know that name, however you know them, whatever that name means to you, know this. God knows them too. That God knows them more. That name means more to God than it ever will to you or to anyone else on this planet. Um, the same God that knows every number of every hair on your head, the same God that knows you, that, that calls you by name, that has your name tattooed on the palms of his hand, that has it written down in the book of life, that same God knows and cares just as deeply for the person whose name you've written down. And he wants to see their name written in that same book of life. That's how much they mean to God. God loves them so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to pay for their sins so that God could love them and be loved by them because God wants to spend eternity with them. Right. Sometimes we think so much about how Jesus died for me. I want you to spend a few moments right now thinking about how God loved them so much he sent his son to die for them. And maybe when I say that, that, that God loves them just as much as he loves you, maybe you think, well, that in some way detracts from his love for you, but, but by no means. You know, as people, we are limited, we are finite, and, and our hearts don't have the capacity to love multiple people that fully, that deeply, and that completely. But, but an infinite God has the capacity for an infinite love, right? And so he loves you that much, and he loves them that much. And that's how I want you to see that person whose name you've written down. Because we need to begin to see these other people as God sees them, as a beloved person created in the image and the likeness of God, a soul created with with divine purpose and eternal destiny. Now, we're going to do more than just write this name down. I want you to do more than just maybe think about them a little bit differently. We're doing this because your mission now is to pray for this person. In fact, over the next month, your assignment is to pray for this person every single day. Right? I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for them by name. I want you to pray for them specifically. And I want you to pray specific things for them. But ultimately, we're praying for their salvation, that they would know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. All right, so, so pray for opportunities to talk to them. Pray that you would know what to say to them and how to say it. Pray that God would place other things and other people in their path that would guide them to him. Now, this series we're starting this week is going to take us all the way to Thanksgiving, and, and your goal is 
to pray for this person, right? Every single day. Now, you've written this name down. Put that as a reminder, right? Someplace where you're going to see it every day and it will remind you to pray for them, right? So tape it to your bathroom mirror, put it on your steering wheel so you see it as you go to work. Um, maybe it's on your desk, maybe it's uh, on your nightstand, you know? Um, so that you do it the last thing before bed, or it's somewhere where like you're going to see it every day when you have lunch and you'll pray for them before you eat. But you're going to pray for that person by name. And here's the reason we're doing that. Um, and, 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 and I'm going to be asking our whole church to pray for their names that they've written down and to do this up through Thanksgiving because prayer is powerful and praying for others is powerful because prayer reaches beyond our earthly dimension into the spiritual realm to access the throne of heaven. And it connects us to the power of God. And it connects that power of God to the hearts and minds of our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. Imagine this. I think you get the whole church praying about the lost people in their lives. And the whole church is praying for a lost person every single day at the same time. And James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And our prayers for others will make a difference in their lives. Right? I believe it will put divine moments in their path. And it will put them on the path to divine moments. Our prayers will also empower us to make a difference in their lives. And we'll begin to see that person differently. We're going to think about them differently. And we'll begin to love them as God loves them. And the Holy Spirit will guide us in what to do, in what to say, to bring them closer to Jesus. Now, prayer isn't just important. It isn't just powerful. It is essential. All right, first of all, prayer is essential because well, prayer acknowledges God's primacy in salvation. Right? Nothing else is, is as important as what God does in salvation because without what God does, there's no salvation. Prayer is fundamental to the spreading of the good news of Jesus because the work of salvation is the power of God working through the Holy Spirit through the means of Jesus' blood on the cross. Right? And prayer connects us to all of that. All right? Prayer also admits our own inadequacy in salvation. So, so prayer acknowledges God's primacy. It also admits our own inadequacy. Um, you see, we don't have the power to save anyone, right? Nothing you say or do, nothing I say or do can't save anyone, not by itself. You can't know enough, say enough, or do enough to save another person. Like, look at it this way, a, a, a syringe. It doesn't save anyone's life, right? And a pill bottle doesn't save anyone. It's the medicine inside, and by ourselves, we're just an empty syringe or an empty pill bottle until we are filled with the truth of God about the saving work of Jesus applied to the hearts and minds of men and women by the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. Right? That's why we're going to pray for them. And I could give you all sorts of evangelism strategies. You could be trained in all sorts of soul-winning techniques. You could be equipped 
with every possible answer, right? None of it would matter without prayer. Right? Salvation requires prayer from the planting of the seed to the first sprout of faith to the budding of repentance to the full blossom of obedience. It all requires the divine work of God, and that means we need prayer. I love what R.A. Torrey writes about the role of prayer in winning the lost. He says, the most important human factor in effective evangelism is prayer. Every great awakening in the history of the church from the time of the apostles until today has been the result of prayer. There have been great awakenings without much preaching. There have been great awakenings with absolutely no organization, but there's never been a true awakening without much prayer. So let me give you a couple of examples, one really old and one very new. Now, most of us have heard the incredible story of the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. This is where God first pours out his Holy Spirit on the disciples in rather dramatic fashion as they were gathered in the upper room. Right, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and then they go down into the temple courts, which were packed with pilgrims for, for a sacred festival, the, the, the Feast of Weeks. Right, and these pilgrims had traveled from all corners of the Roman Empire. And though all of them would have been Jewish in heritage, they spoke many different local languages and dialects. And so the apostles begin to preach. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, they preach in different languages so that, that each person could hear the saving message of the good news of Jesus in their own language. Now, by the end of the day, 3,000 people were baptized into Christ, right? Their souls were saved, and, and they become a part of this infant church. And overnight, the church grows from just 120 believers to 3,120 believers. But how did all of this happen? How, how did it begin? In fact, here's the question. What were the disciples doing in that upper room before the Holy Spirit fell on them in tongues of flame? What was happening there when the Holy Spirit responded in such dramatic fashion? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of these disciples, it said, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All right, so what were they doing up there? They were praying. Now, normally when you hear a sermon, you don't have to do math, but we're going to do a little math here. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says that the risen Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days. And, and during these appearances, he taught them about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus promised them that, that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit, and then they would be his witnesses in all of uh, in Jerusalem and, and all of Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And so after Jesus ascends into heaven, they go back to Jerusalem to await this promised Holy Spirit. Now, Remember that, that Jesus' death and resurrection happened at Passover, a Jewish holy day. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Passover. So 50 days pass. Now, that's what Pentecost means. It's the Greek word for 50th. 
Now, the 50th day falls on another Jewish holy day called Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. So the Holy Spirit comes 50 days after the resurrection, yet Jesus appeared for a period of 40 days. So 50 minus 40 is a period of 10 days. That means that the disciples had devoted themselves to prayer for 10 days as they were awaiting the Holy Spirit. Prayer was the priming charge that ignited the explosive growth of the early church. Prayer set into motion this massive chain reaction that results in the salvation of 3,000 souls, the lost coming to Jesus, and the sudden dramatic growth of the church. Right? Prayer lights the fuse, and once that fuse is lit, it's like, whoa, boy, watch out. Now, that's at the very beginning. Now fast forward all the way to February 8th, 2023. A regularly scheduled chapel service was coming to an end at Asbury University, a, a Christian college in Kentucky. But there were a group of students from this Bible college that, instead of heading back to their dorms or to their next class, decided to re re uh, remain behind in the chapel to pray and to worship. Now, this was a spontaneous response of the students. It wasn't led by faculty or staff. It wasn't organized. It wasn't planned. It was just a bunch of teenagers who were responding to, to the move of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And unplanned, unexpectedly, unorganized, revival breaks out, and it's massive. Worship and prayer services continued in the chapel around the clock continuously for more than two weeks until February 23rd. And all of it is led by students, you know, members of the Gen X generation, these kids that we're told are the least spiritual and the least interested in God of all the generations. And yet these kids are showing a, a hunger and a desire to know God, a passion to be close to him. And soon this little sleepy Kentucky town is, is being flooded with thousands and thousands and thousands of people, not just from all over the country, but people were coming from all over the world just to be a part of what was happening. Revival spreads to other campuses. The, the revival goes viral online. There's dramatic stories of, of faith and power and transformation coming out of this revival. Now, one day history will tell us what the maybe the long-term impact of the Asbury revival was. But one thing is for certain, it all began with, with prayer. So prayer acknowledges God's primacy in salvation. Prayer admits our own inadequacy in prayer. And finally, prayer is essential because it fulfills God's command that we pray. And this is just a simple one. I don't need to spend a lot of time of it, but Jesus commanded us to pray for the salvation of souls. In Matthew 9, 37 and 38, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's a matter of obedience, folks. So evangelism begins in heaven, right? Prayer isn't just something that we do before the work of evangelism starts, right? It is the work of evangelism. It begins the work of evangelism. And prayer is a partnership between you and God to change the life of that person.
And imagine you pray for them and God responds by placing in their heart maybe a greater desire to know him, a, a burning conviction that something is missing from their life, that something more is needed. Maybe God gives them the right questions to start asking. Maybe God places certain people and events in their lives that puts them on the path that they need to be on for you to share your own faith with them. Your prayer has the power to remove unseen hindrances from their heart and their mind. Your prayer can smash through barriers in their thinking, and your fervent prayers can erode away sinful attitudes that have so far blocked the growth of any faith. Now, praying for them alone is not enough. But let me say this, without prayer, nothing will ever be enough. By itself, prayer cannot do all the work of evangelism, but without it, evangelism will never work. Here's the example I use. Um, now, near where I live, we have a Silver Dollar City down in Branson, and there's a roller coaster there called the Powder Keg. And it's a very popular roller coaster. And it's one of those coasters, it's called a launch coaster. It doesn't slowly ratchet you up a hill to drop you from the top. No, it shoots you like a bullet out of a gun, just a sudden explosive launch. And, and the way this one works is it uses air compressors. And as you get in the ride and you move into position, you can hear these compressors building a charge, right? There's like sounds and puffs of air. And then boom, you shoot out of there. Your head slams back in, in your chair and your face looks like one of those NASA training videos where your cheeks get sucked back behind your ears, right? That's what prayer does for our efforts in reaching the lost, right? Prayer is that powerful launch, that, that push of, of divine wind that propels our efforts with power. Without that power, our, our efforts are going to lack power. They're going to fail to produce results. So I'm inviting you right now to take that name that you've written down, and I want you to pray for that person over the next month. I want you to pray for them passionately, fervently. Pray for them. And to give you a little extra motivation, imagine that person, that, that name that you've written down, imagine them spending eternity in hell. Right? Hell isn't just a myth. It isn't just a symbol. It's real. And imagine judgment day when their destiny is proclaimed. And think about all the days all the opportunities you've had with that person, all the days you work together, all the days of class, of, of, of seeing them in the hall near your locker, uh, maybe the Christmas and Thanksgiving meals spent together, all the times fishing or shopping, uh, the times going out to eat, all the things that you've talked about. And in all of that, you couldn't talk more about Jesus. In all of those discussions, you, you couldn't find a little bit of time to, to talk about spiritual truth. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century prince of preachers, as he was called, once said this, if sinners be damned, at least them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled 
in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwanted, unwarned and unprayed for. That's why we're praying for them, right? That's why we're going to spend these days in prayer, praying for these names that we've written down. We're not just praying for them to, to live a blessed life, to have a more fulfilled life, or even to grow closer to God. Right? We're praying for their salvation. And the stakes are eternity. And there's only two choices, right? Heaven or hell. That's it. It matters. And this stuff matters forever. Think of the Apostle Paul and how he thought of his fellow Jews who had refused and rejected Jesus as their Savior. Paul writes in Romans 9, 2, and 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Paul's saying here, I, I would go to hell if only it would save all of them. But here's the thing. We all have people in our sphere of influence. I have my own, you have yours. And we need to be praying for those people, the lost people in that circle of, of, of influence. Right? We should be praying for them because we love them. We should be praying for them because God loves them and he doesn't want anyone to perish. Right? Second Peter 3.9 says that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to a, a knowledge of repentance. Now, since these people... Since that name is in your circle of relationships, you may very well be the most qualified person on planet Earth to reach them. Right? There are people out there that you are more able to reach than anyone else. Right? Why? Because you know them. You have a relationship with them. Right? And they see your life as a living representation of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. Right? And that matters more than... And how well you know your Bible, that matters more than, than can you answer every question. And so I want you to pray for that person. And then maybe we'll have an opportunity to reach that person. So as this video comes to an end, I invite you, I challenge you right now, just to spend a few minutes in prayer for that name. And thank you. And God bless.